0: Others tend to forget Come with us and move on Not the movie, you be For welcoming to Movie Oubliette, the continent-crossing podcast for Forgotten Fantastical Films, with me, Conrad, simultaneously supporting and cursing the train strikes in Cambridge, UK. Uh, And me, Dan,
1: forgetting to mention last episode that I did a troll double feature down
0: here in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, we focus on forgotten fantasy, sci-fi and horror films because we love visions of the future, eye-popping special effects and intimate experiences with the son of god hello dan <laughs> hello 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 uh, how are you Conrad? not too bad i'm a little bit annoyed because it's a bank holiday weekend here in the uk uh-huh. and it's also london theater week just as i've been bitten by the theater bug uh-huh. lots of great deals on theater tickets Yes. No trains whatsoever. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I mean,
1: similarly, mm. uh, not not from strikes, but we've had a lot of tr- um, railway works in uh, in Melbourne at the moment. So so many train lines have replacement buses. In the bus system in melbourne it's not good it's it's just you might as no. well just give up you might as well walk because it's it's just chaos you, you, and also i don't know how they oh, no. they figured you can fit an entire um, train you know full of passengers on a little bus Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's far too many people. And so it's always like the buses are too full and you have to wait for the next bus. But um, anyway,
0: trains. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Public transport. I don't trust replacement bus services. I never go on it. If it says replacement bus service, I just give up. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, essentially, uh, yeah. That's what happens (laughs) over here. (laughs) Yeah. So you did a troll double bill after
1: all. Yes, I did. well. I didn't watch Troll 1 and Troll 2. I watched Troll, the the movie that you did with uh, Melinda, Mm. Troll from 1986. But I also watched, I don't know why, but we decided back to back to watch another Troll movie uh, from 2022, the uh, Norwegian Troll movie called Troll, Troll. Oh yeah, and yeah, it was it was quite quite cool to see sort of two troll movies, very different, <laughs> very different uh, sort of decades as well, countries back to back.
0: Yeah, wasn't the latter one like a Netflix movie made by the guy who did Troll Hunter? Is it? Is that what it was?
1: I don't know whether I don't think it is related to Troll Hunter. I I'm, I I could be wrong, but it, it it is a very similar premise. So it is they're both Norwegian movies. Um, both with big trolls, but definitely this <laughs> troll movie felt like a Godzilla movie, but in Scandinavia. So you have this big monster terrorizing towns and and them trying to figure out how to
0: take it down. But uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Oh okay, no he he isn't that director. It's a uh, uh, raw Ro- Uthag. I'm probably pronouncing that know. totally wrong. And he's the director of the disaster movie *The Wave* and the recent *Tomb Raider*. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, no, not the Troll Hunter guy. Yeah, <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> I would still recommend this movie though. Yeah, if you if you uh, want to watch a sort of a, a, a Scandinavian Godzilla monster movie, <laughs> watch *Troll*. It <laughs> well, sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it check was. it out. It was.
0: It was. Mm. So, uh, any uh, fun comments in our uh, mailbag today, Conrad? Well, yes, indeed. And we have two new patrons as well. So, hello, Ryan and Anthony. Oh, hello. Great to have you supporting the show. Yes, yes. Welcome aboard. And on Troll, we heard from Paul Anderson, who said... Troll is and remains a big favourite of mine, watching First Rounder Mates when we were much too young and on a slightly piratical copy of said film. Uh It truly freaked me as a child, especially the transformation scenes. I'm so glad it's been released to unnerve and delight others. I also got the Arrow Blu ray set you mentioned as a large Empire era Charles Band fan, and I did not know until I watched the Cellar Dweller special features that the director of both. John Carl Buechler, was such a prolific and influential special effects artist. Mm. Something you may know about the bands, the father, Albert, was the big composer, with Charles, the director, who had more than a little musical talent, as well as his brother, Richard, who scored Troll, Uh but his son, Alex is lead singer of The Calling, who people of a certain age will remember for Wherever You Will Go. Basically, we could do a new Kevin Bacon game around Charles Band.
1: (laughs) Ah, okay. Yeah. A very famous family, it seems.
0: Yeah. Do you remember Wherever You Will Go? I seem to remember it being on the emotional climax of every tv series in yeah Maltes, but maybe i, I, was I can't
1: i can't remember i have to i have to listen to it again i
0: i didn't remember i'd put but as soon as i put it on youtube i started singing along so yes i knew uh, it was. okay all right uh We also heard from Dustin Rathbun, who said, Trolls marketing creeped me out much more than the movie when I was a kid. And while this wasn't the first film I saw Phil Fondacaro in, that was 1981's Under the Rainbow, this is the Uh one that made me look for other films he appeared in. He's unironically one of my favourite Draculas, even if the film that performance was in, The Creeps, 1997, Uh was terrible. Ah,
1: <laughs> oh, okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah,
0: I'd be interested to see a Dracula played by Phil Fondacaro. That sounds fascinating. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. Mm. On Bug, John Michael Rouse said, "Powerful acting from both leads, a watchable and scary descent into madness." Good pick. Uh huh. Yeah, it was. Yeah, definitely was. a descent. <laughs> definitely, yeah. It was. It was not not a happy trajectory they were on. Mm. And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash ah, Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. I was ready to toss Bug back into the oubliette after I first saw it, but as I've sat with it for a few days, I'm finding more to like. The plot doesn't make any literal sense, but in terms of vibes, it's pretty spot on. Even more relevant in the QAnon era than 9-11, really.
1: Yeah, it does get mm. on you, under your skin after a while. Um,
0: and I do I do think it does get better on repeat viewings as well. Yeah, I always watch Jubilee movies twice, once to just experience them and then a second time to take notes. And it was definitely the second time when I thought, okay... I can see I can mm. see what there is to appreciate here. Yeah. Whereas first yeah. time around I was just sort of, what was that? <laughs> yeah, I
1: know. Yeah. <laughs> ah, well, anyway,
0: yeah, it's so it. I'm glad you uh eventually uh got to appreciate it. Mm. So thanks everybody for writing in. We always love hearing from you. Mm. Yes, yes, we do. So Conrad. What's on the agenda today
1: What movie are we going to discuss I
0: don't know, I'll just saunter on over To the Oubliette and find out mm-hmm. oh, uh, This is a very ostentatious room It seems to be playing some home movies Oh, okay, yeah All of them end with somebody just about to Do something really dangerous It's a bit creepy A bit sinister <laughs> mm. Okay, there's a big cabinet here I think this is where the movie must be Just unlock it. Okay. Ah, here it is. Okay, coming back.
1: Well, I hate hotel rooms. They're like torture chambers. Oh,
0: Conrad, you're you're back. What do you have today? Well, this is an interesting one. This is a foreign language film for us. So it's Mm. a Dutch movie. It's The Fourth Man. It's the 1983 Dutch psychological thriller film and one of the last films that Paul Verhoeven directed before he did Robocop and made his big splash in Hollywood. Right, it right. It stars Jeroen Crabbe and René Soutendik and Tom Hoffman. I've probably <laughs> screwed all of the pronunciations of that. <laughs> and with a screenplay by Gerard Soterman, based on the novel by Gerard Rev. Ah, yes, okay, okay. What happens in this film? Well, Dan, alcoholic writer Gerard Rev is invited to give a talk to a literary appreciation society in the seaside city of Flushing. It's not an uneventful journey. He fails to cruise a hot guy at the train station and is besieged by visions of biblical figures and premonitions of gruesome death a fairly average commute on a British train since (laughs) privatisation. At Flushing, he meets the mysterious treasurer of the literary society, Christine, a beautiful young widow with a fondness for filming men and inviting them back to her hairdressing salon. After a steamy night of passion in which Gerard compares Christine to a boy, he's Mm. about to leave when he discovers Christine's boyfriend Herman is none other than the hot guy he tried to bonk at the station. Determined to get a second chance, Gerard tells Christine he'll stay just to teach Herman how to satisfy a woman in bed, obviously being an expert in this field. But his visions of Jesus... (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but his visions of Jesus, Mary, sex and death intensify as he learns that Christine has been careless enough to lose not one, but three husbands to untimely deaths. Mm. Is Christine a femme fatale who lures men to their doom in her web of desire? Will Herman or Gerard become the fourth man? Will Gerard fantasise about sliding Jesus out of his speedo? It's a paul verhoven <laughs> film yes he will but oh. find out why after the break
1: <laughs> yes 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 and we'll be joined by a, an expert on this film yes. our guest today
0: a very special guest who chose this movie so i'm intrigued to find out why Our special guest today is a director and screenwriter who creates sci-fi, horror and fantasy films that resonate as well as entertain. From his debut Cube, an instantly admired cult classic, to Splice, Haunter and most recently In the Tall Grass, and yet he somehow finds the time to also direct the best episodes of your favourite hit TV shows such as Hannibal, Westworld, Lock and Key, The Stand, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. The list goes on. It's an incredible list of Credits from an Astonishing Artist we're very excited to have on the pod. Welcome, Vincenzo
2: Natale! Hooray! Welcome, welcome. Thank you, Conrad. Thank you, Dan. What an honour it is to be here. What an introduction. My goodness. I'm not deserving.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm amazed when I look at your uh, filmography, just at how many things you do. How do you find the time?
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm surprised you would say that. I feel like I don't do enough. I'm like, fuck. (laughs) it's been i don't know how long since my last movie and i just want to make movies i mean i like tv Mm. i feel extremely fortunate to be able to work in that space but at my heart i'm a three-act structured guy i'm kind of Ah, built for movies so i i would like to have made more movies (laughs) aspire to yes Mm,
1: mm. What? what's the biggest difference between directing tv to movies
2: well you know it's funny there's a strange prejudice in the TV world against feature film directors because they think, oh, they're so used to having so much time and so much Uh, money. But if you're an independent feature filmmaker like I am, actually TV, as it stands now, is more luxurious of the two mediums. Uh. And it's very easy to make that transition. Mm -hmm. So from a sort of nuts and bolts perspective, they're kind of the same now. Uh From an artistic perspective, film is a director's medium, television – is a writer's medium. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy both. Like I actually enjoy stepping into someone else's world in the TV space. And I try to invest as much of myself as I would in one of my movies in the shows that I work on. But I Uh also am aware that the show belongs to the showrunner and that the baby will be passed on to them. And and I'm okay with that. So it's actually, in a weird way, it's like there's a little bit of a burden lifted from my shoulders when I'm working for somebody else. I don't feel fully responsible for the thing, uh-huh. whereas when I make my own movie, it's like, I have the weight of myself, you know, <laughs> like my own ridiculous expectations or whatever, you know, and of course, the line between the two mediums is gradually dissolving. streaming and so on and Mm. we could have that could be a whole other podcast (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah well I think there are common themes in your films and I think I spy some of them in the movie you've chosen for us to talk about today but one thing that connects your tv work even though you're always working in somebody else's milieu is that it's uniformly excellent I'm never surprised to see your name in the credits at the end of a great episode because I can tell it's you Uh oh
2: thank you I'm a big comic fan. In my youth, I wanted to be a comic book artist, and I sort of see TV as similar in the way that, you know, comic book series were a series, like a TV series. And then, you know, an artist would come in, and they would always add a very distinctive style yeah. to that series. And I and I think that's what a TV director should do without ever breaking the overall style of the show. But, uh, you know, there's just quite a r- bit of room to play in. And I found in TV, I've had tremendous freedom like I rarely have somebody leaning over my shoulder telling me what to do you know it's um, yeah. it's a nice space.
0: Well speaking of creative freedom the film that you've chosen today is from a director who has frequently struggled with finding the creative freedom that he yearns for Paul Verhoeven he pushes boundaries it causes problems for him I think this is his last Dutch language film before he went to Hollywood to make Robocop in search of funding for for his films because he was struggling to get funding in the Netherlands because of the content of his work I'd never seen any of his pre Hollywood movies before yeah me either right so this is a big discovery for both of us but I sense not for you Vincenzo what's your history with The Fourth Man when did you first see it
2: well I'm of a certain vintage (laughs) and I saw it on video but not so long after it came out in theatre so I believe the film was really least in 1983. It might not have hit Canada, which is where I'm from, until a little bit later. I recall seeing it in maybe 86, when I was like 17 years old. Uh. So this was before RoboCop. Mm. And actually, between Fourth Man and RoboCop, he made um, Flesh and Blood, Uh Flesh Plus Blood, which was, I think, a, a weird sort of hybrid. It was kind of a European film, although it was in English. But I am quite certain that it was the fourth man that got him Robocop or you know was the one that really ignited Hollywood's interest in him
3: uh-huh. and
2: I think you know when you see the film it's easy to see why because uh, he's just such a dynamic robust filmmaker and entertaining filmmaker and for me yes as I say it was before I saw Robocop before Robocop existed mm. and it was a movie that people talked about a lot like it, it although it was a foreign film and clearly an art house film, It was reviewed on Cisco and Ebert, it was widely released, it was very successful financially in North America, Mm. maybe more so than it was in Europe. And so it was something people knew about, and I remember seeing the poster for it with this like beautiful Hitchcockian and icy blonde on it, and the scissors, and it, it looked really intriguing. So, and then when I saw it, <laughs> there was a lot more to it, yeah. uh, and uh, it was kind of an awakening. Like the whole sexual side of it is very frank and sophisticated. It's the kind of you know when I was young, like the European films that were really thrilling to me and that were kind of mind-expanding. Where this one, Diva the Jean-Jacques Binnock's film, which was in the early 80s, Das Boot, Fanny and Alexander. like do, These are these beautifully produced, very lush, but very adult and very much apart from Hollywood kind of movies that were nonetheless in those days seen widely in movie theaters in North America and certainly in Toronto, where I grew up, and they broadened my horizons, and I, and I really feel like this is one of those movies. And then I'll never forget, I'm sorry, this is a very long answer, but I'll never forget in the in the wake of this, maybe a year or two later, going to the sneak preview of RoboCop in Toronto, where nobody knew what that was. (laughs) And my dear friend, Andre Bajelic, who wrote my film Cube with me, and I went to that screening, which actually had RoboCop there for a live appearance in the theater.
0: Wow! There
2: was a guy in an actual RoboCop suit. I have a wow. photo of myself that was taken with him.
0: Not Peter Weller. <laughs> it
2: wasn't Peter Weller. No,
0: he's probably sick of it by that time.
2: <laughs> I think he would have, yeah, he would have probably <laughs> decked me if I tried to take a photo with him. But um, that movie blew our minds and took the house down like people went crazy for it and uh-huh. it was you know very paul verhoeven very quickly became one of my favorite directors and like in the one-two punch of fourth man and robocop uh and it, you know his sort of cynicism and his <laughs> his unwillingness to candy coat anything or to try to make his characters at all redeeming or likable it <laughs> was somehow a <laughs> real catnip for me and um for me actually that's kind of was his zenith As a filmmaker, he did many great things afterwards, but that period was just exquisite.
0: Wow. Yeah, it was certainly impactful. I was surprised at how financially successful this was. So it was released the 24th of March, 1983, garnered 275,000 admissions in the Netherlands, which is how they measure box office success there, which is considerably less than his previous films, which all garnered more than a million admissions. Mm -hmm. But it was the highest grossing Dutch film of all time in the US with a gross of $1.7 million, which I find quite surprising for a a non-English language film. I think I can guess why. (laughs) It certainly has some delights on show that you wouldn't see in a lot of Hollywood output around abouts that time. It's a dizzying phantasmagoria of sex, religion and death, <laughs> which was quite something to
2: behold. Mm. It's quite the cocktail. Yeah, and uh well, I'd be very interested to see or hear what you think of it, Dan.
1: Yeah, so I, I haven't seen a huge amount of Paul Verhoeven's work, you know, Robocop, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man, Total Recall. I think that's it that I've seen. So this was very different to all of his Hollywood stuff. I mean, he's always got metaphors and symbolism and movies about fascism and stuff like that. But this movie felt very housey. Like this would be A film student's wet dream in terms of like critical (laughs) analysis and symbolism and visuals and colors. So it was very different for me and very, like you said, Hitchcockian. But also kind of Nicholas Rogue as well, like I had, mm. like all the red mm. in it did remind me of Don't Look Now, and sort of the dream sequences were quite similar. But yeah, very fascinating film. Yeah, yeah I
2: think even for him it was kind of a quote unquote arty film that his right. his Dutch films had been criticized within Europe for being like too American, but being a little. In not as pretentious. Really.
3: Uh-huh. This yes. was
2: kind of like his answer to his critics. And then, ironically, the critics loved it. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it,
3: it, <laughs> was, it may not have been his
2: financially most successful film in the Netherlands, but it was, I think, critically the one that got the best response. Right, 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 right. It
0: is a beautiful-looking film. I mean, in terms of compositions... And the colour in it, it's just astonishing to look at. The cinematographer is, of course, Jan de Bont, who had been with Paul Verhoeven throughout his early career. And and he worked on Flesh and Blood, which was the international co-production, but then, of course, directed Speed and became a director in his own right. But the film is astonishingly beautiful. But in terms of the symbolism and being the film student's wet dream, Dan, (laughs) it almost begs the question, can you have too much symbolism? <laughs> in the movie because the whole film is very much just this complex web that I saw one critic said it almost becomes its own self fulfilling prophecy. Right. There's virtually nothing in it that isn't connected directly with the fate of Gerard Rev, the central character played by Yaron Crabé. Everything is pointing towards his doom at the hands of this femme fatale who's been through three husbands already. It's quite astonishing. It's so rich.
2: Interesting that it starts with a web. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The opening image is spider's web. (laughs) Yeah. not subtle. (laughs)
0: Yes, across the face of Christ. That's right. (laughs) It's just hammering it in there from the word go, and it never lets up. He has so many premonitions. But early on, you're introduced to this character and this idea that he talks about in his literary uh, speech that he gives, that he lies to himself. He has a very fertile imagination in order to create his own reality. And so you're constantly seeing him do that, even from the opening scene where he fantasizes murdering his boyfriend Mm. (laughs) because he's... You know, they're just having a bit of a bitching session early in the morning. And I noticed in your commentary about Haunter, you said that you were drawn to Haunter because it centers on a character who's able to transcend the reality of their day-to-day life and mm. recognize sense that there's something outside that mm. is that something that might have uh, tickled your fancy about the fourth man as well
2: yeah i think so and it's so interesting you should mention that because somewhat in preparation for this but also because i've been wanting to see it i watched benedita
3: oh yeah which
2: is paul verhoeven's latest film mm. and not to talk about that movie too much but it has the same theme. Uh-huh. It is about the veil of what's behind reality, which I think is also the case with Total Recall. Oh, yeah. And so, consciously or not, it seems like a reoccurring theme, a motif in his work. And yes, and I would say I'm fascinated by that, too. And I I love how in his movies, his characters walk this line between fantasy and reality, and it is never clarified. Like he, with great intention, leaves the truth ambiguous, which I think is kind of the way life is, right? Like we, <laughs> we do on some level create our own reality, and we never know where the line is between what is manufactured inside our minds and what's really out there. And in this particular film, you know, you have this self-professed unreliable narrator which is our <laughs> our hero who's a writer whose profession is to invent stories and fantasies and we kind of navigate this path with him where we're not entirely sure perhaps what's really going on and what's in his mind and really to the bitter end we'll never know and then of course he's got his fingers in religion too so you know uh, it's really asking well is there divine intervention of some sort and then what is the nature of that intervention is god benevolent or is god the spider mm-hmm. <laughs> is it the crucifix or the spider which is, if it in fact exists so it was so great to revisit the movie because i hadn't seen it certainly since my early 20s i think mm-hmm. oddly enough i think the last time i saw it was in a repertory theater so i did see it on the big screen but oh, wow. so i was I just kind of curious like if it held up or not and i thought Boy, does it ever. I think it's like on every level, the performances, the casting. I think the script's so tight. That's the other thing. You know, we we talk about it being an art film with a capital A and something, uh, film students wet dream, (laughs) but actually it is a bit of a Swiss watch in terms of how the plot has been constructed, it's, you know, Hitchcockian Hmm. in its use of the mechanisms of the story. And in it's entirely pays off. Like, it doesn't feel like it's throwing its metaphors around casually. It seems to be very strategically placed and with great intention. Maybe the only thing you could say is, well, maybe it's a little too obvious (laughs) sometimes. But then at the end, it it remains ambiguous. So I think, I really think it's a masterpiece. I feel like seeing it again, it kind of cemented in my mind that actually... This is a great movie, and it's, I would go so far as to say it's maybe Paul Verhoeven's best film. Ooh. I think the other thing that impressed me seeing it now was just how the sexuality in it hasn't aged at all. There's just a frankness to it and a naturalness to it that even now you don't see in movies. Hmm. The main character is gay or bisexual. There's no judgment there's no discussion of it. He just is. And I just thought, God, that's so refreshing. Because mm. even now, when mm. that's a part of the movie, somehow it always has to be commented on. But there's no comment in this. It just is. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I really, I thought that was lovely. And uh, I really feel like it holds up beautifully.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: So this it's based on a novel by Gerard Reeve. Mm. So he writes himself into his own novel, I guess. But it is fictional. I think they did change quite a few things. Obviously, adapting a book to movie. You've also adapted a book to movie. Are there sort of a lot of challenges with how to adapt like visually to film?
2: Yeah. I mean, it depends on the book. Of course. I think the approach I always take is what is the essence of the book, not what are the literal events of the book. Sure. that are important uh, and to kind of hone in on that and extract that. But there's such different mediums and I don't know what this book was like to adapt and I've never read it, but my understanding is that it was quite short mm-hmm. and I think often though, you know, a novella, is an easier kind of adaptation because you are then allowed to expand upon it whereas usually the problem that most movies have being adapted from novels is they don't have the room for them because the books are so much more expansive
3: Hmm.
2: and it becomes a case of you know having to do a lot of hard work whittling them down to an hour and a half or two hours but this one i think they could comfortably expand on it and, um, yeah, is that really the writer's name, Gerard Rev, where the writer and the character have the same name? Yeah, yeah, they do. But that's incredible to me.
0: Yeah, and his surname is the French for dream, so it's Yes! It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it
2: does. Maybe that's his nom de plume or something.
0: It could well be. He's quite a fascinating character if you read up on him.
2: Do you know much more about
0: him? He converted to Catholicism in 1966 and then was promptly put on trial for blasphemy, so he's openly <laughs> homosexual writer who seems to have had a lots of controversies surrounding his life. And this book is sort of semi-autobiographical, but also could be just a complete yarn. So it was very difficult. And yeah, Paul Verhoeven looked at it and said, this maybe makes one hour of good TV. But I think it was his frequent, screenwriting partner Gerard Soterman who said no there is something here Mm. and I think it was the screenwriter who spun this Hitchcockian thriller Mm. out of what was some critics said was self-indulgent exhibitionist (laughs) story about a guy who was just on the pull really and the end result is thematically fascinating in terms of the sexuality and certainly the sexuality mixed with religion because i think the Mm. suggestion is that the object of his lust is definitely not christine Mm. it probably isn't even herman the suggestion is that the object of his lust is jesus
2: you gotta see benedita go watch benedita
0: (laughs) really Ah. because oh yeah is it even more explicit there if that's not a bad choice of word (laughs) it is Right, okay. So, I was quite startled by some of the imagery in the film, which I'm a certain age at this point. I've seen quite a few movies, so to see something that actually slaps me in the face.
2: Or cross your legs. Oh, oh well, yeah. quite. <laughs> First it slaps you in the face and then you cross your legs. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> that scene. Yeah. I don't think there's anything like it in any movie Yeah. that I've seen.
1: I was trying to understand that scene. So, I don't know whether this is correct or not, but there is is a scene earlier where there's a painting of Samson and Delilah Mm. and that story it's about Samson having being super strong and his only weakness was like his hair so I guess is Gerard's Secret to strength, his penis, and so getting it cut off in that dream is like making him weak.
2: I think it's emasculation. I think it's, yeah, yeah. I think in both cases, the hair cutting is a form of emasculation in the biblical story, and then Mm -hmm. Gerard's dream is a little more explicit than that.
0: Yeah, 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 pretty shocking. And after you have the more subtle scene where Christine washes his hair with Delilah shampoo, which looks like blood, and then cuts it. And you think, wow. But I mean, if I were to try and pull up all of the references in this, we'd be here all day because it's literally everything that anybody says, picks up or does or thinks about or visualizes is in some way tied all together Right? Yes. with this tale of him being drawn ever further into the center of this web.
1: I mean, the most obvious being the sign of her beautician clinic. The lights aren't working, but it spells out spin, which is Dutch for spider like it's like yeah the symbolism (laughs) symbolism
2: (laughs) i love it like i to me it's just it's it's what i want when i watch a european film and it is i mean i think it explicitly comes from the symbolist movement and from the surrealist movement all of which i think is largely connected to dreams Mm. if it were poorly executed you know i think that kind of thing if it's done in a clunky inelegant way that could be off-putting, but because the film is so masterfully photographed, and I'm not just talking about the lighting, which is exquisite, but the way Paul Verhoeven controls his camera, mm. I mean, it really is the highest, like, it's a totally at a Brian De Palma level or above.
3: Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. It
2: is at a Hitchcock level. Like, it is, he is masterful in the way he reveals information using his camera. And the way he makes these transitions into the dream spaces. So, uh, you know, the fact that he's so highly competent at his job and the fact that I think the film is winking at us a little bit, that it's not taking itself <laughs> too seriously mm. and is kind of having fun with how garish it is in the way that Paul Verhoeven often does, makes all of that very palatable and, and kind of fun.
0: Yeah, it does. The camera work is quite predatory in this one. Mm. It's fascinating as well that Christine is seen in the movie filming Gerard frequently and it turns out that mm. she films all of her husbands and they, they're like the home movies in Sinister. They all end with a scene that clearly points towards their demise <laughs> yeah. in some way, whether they're going parachuting or taunting lions with raw meat or whatever it is that her, her husbands unwisely do before yeah. they suddenly... <laughs> (laughs) become ex-husbands. But she's there with this camera that looks very much like a gun. She's pulling a trigger and at one point she says to Gerard, I wasn't going to let a celebrity like you escape me. So she speaks in very predatory terms when she's shooting him with her camera. And I think the camera work in this is creeping and predatory and mm. and the transition as you say from the real world into the dream space which is something that I've always loved in movies just because it seems so visually metaphorical of the experience of sitting in the theatre and watching a movie anyway that scene where he sees an image of the hotel that he will end up staying in yeah, it's great. and mm. you cut to a close up of it and he walks into it. it's just it's the sort of thing that sets the hairs up on the back of my neck I don't know what it is I just love that kind of thing. Mm. And he
2: uses um. On that shot, he uses some kind of optical trick where...
0: Yeah, the flashing. Yes,
2: he's using, for anyone who hasn't seen it, and I'm sorry, I guess we're just going spoiler crazy. Yeah, Yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) go (laughs) spoiler.
2: It's in a train, and there's an advertisement, and there's an image of this hotel. And he sees this, and there's light from the window that is flickering on this image. Mm. And the camera, and it's one incredibly smooth move goes towards the image. So you see the boundaries of the advertisement. So, And then as the boundaries of the advertisement leave the frame, Gerard walks into the shot. Yeah. But we still see the light flashing against yeah. what would be the material of the advertisement. Yeah, And, you know, this is pre-digital, right? So this is an optical effect. Of course. Absolutely seamless, like beautifully executed. I think he just knocked it out of the park. And, and then I, I love Jerome Crabbe
3: because
2: mm-hmm. he's just so like unrepentantly... Selfish. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he has no attempt to like endear himself to any of the other characters that he meets or the audience. But he's charming <laughs> for that reason. He's kind of a wolf and we sort of love him for it.
0: We do. And he also has that boyish glee sometimes, like the scene where <laughs> yeah. he offers to read Christine's palm and manages to convince her to go and get uh, Herman's photograph and letter so that he can have a yeah. legitimate reason for looking at them, even though he's already looked at them in her bedroom. Without her knowledge, and he's giddy as a schoolboy, jumping up and down in his chair. He's so excited about the possibility of looking at Herman's swimwear photograph again. Mm, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It's really, it's uh, it's great. And uh, I love how courageous he is. Like oh, yeah, the huh. fact that in the first or second shot of him, he's like naked from. <laughs> the waist down, down. Yeah. yeah and he's walking the shot is like you're looking at a stairwell and he comes down the stairs and the first thing you see <laughs> is <laughs> yeah. his naked lower half yeah and it's not flattering like it's not no <laughs> you know,
0: there's it, nothing glamorous about it at all
2: <laughs> nothing glamorous and yet it says so much about this it's also not gratuitous to me because it feels like okay this is a real person this is real life and he's a drunk he's hung over And I said, well, it's really courageous Mm. for an actor to do that. And I've always been bothered by the fact that it's permissible for women to be perceived in a movie naked that's fine but guys never are mm. I'm not saying that anyone should have to be naked but I just feel like there's obviously a double standard at work here Yeah. and so I appreciated in this movie that he's just like you know letting it all hang out
1: <laughs> but I, I think it's quite brave like filmmaking wise as well to have a character that's quite unlikable mm. he's not a good person at all like he tries to steal a magazine and <laughs> like, <laughs> from the store he's not a nice guy but it's still like fascinating to see how he unravels and completely loses control or loses his mind at the end mm-hmm.
2: somehow you end up empathizing with him like you're yeah, you i love i really appreciate that paul Verhoeven is not judgmental mm-hmm. of his characters like i feel like there's a partially a european thing but it's just you know, there's a tendency in American films that this person's good, this person's bad. Like, we're always judging the characters. Yeah, And I really feel like, even in like a movie like Robocop, which is basically a Western, mm. it's a lot of ambiguity. Yes, Robocop is good, but he's also, like, violent and he's a tool of the system. And I just feel like there's a lot of willingness on... Paul Verhoeven's part to present all facets of humans without judgment mm-hmm. and then he, I think he is either thrilled or repulsed or both by cruelty. Humanity's an appetite for cruelty just fascinates him
3: <laughs> I can't tell if like, it
2: excites him or it repulses him or it's, you know a combination of the two but I, as an audience member I find it fascinating and I don't think there are many contemporary filmmakers anywhere that really do that.
0: Yeah and similarly I love the way that he toys with our need for sensationalist images and then confronts us with something that really forces us (laughs) to to deal with our true nature and you can hear him laughing behind the camera I can just hear him laughing (laughs) very much so with Catherine Tramiel and crossing her legs which is still talked about now because Mm. it was just so confronting and yet seen Mm. as quite an empowering moment for her although Sharon Stone feels differently about it now but it's a moment and he creates it and I can just feel him smiling the whole time he's doing it
2: Yeah, well, that film, and I'm not a huge fan of Basic Instinct, and I haven't seen it in a long time, but as I recall, she never pays for her crimes. No. There was a lot of criticism at the time from the gay community that it was gay people once again being represented as bad guys. But I think that there's probably an argument also being made that, well, but she's not punished. The film isn't punishing her. Which is usually what happens, right? The femme fatale almost invariably gets their comeuppance at the end. And so the correct moral order is restored and everything's (laughs) okay. But in in that case, no, (laughs) she gets away with it. And I think the movie, intentionally or not, sort of sidesteps some of those criticisms because it doesn't take a moral higher ground. Mm. It doesn't punish the murderous lesbian, you know, kind of celebrates her in a way because she's empowered in a corrupt world.
1: Yeah. Well, in, in that respect, do you think Gerard's character is punished for his homosexuality? at the end? Or is that more like he finds God or his love for God?
2: I took it that he always had love for God, Mm -hmm. that he was very religious from the beginning. And no, and I don't think that... That's what I love about the way the gay element is dealt with. It's it's not even a topic of discussion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just like, oh, you know, why not? And and at the end, I mean, he's gone crazy. He's just lost his mind, is snapped. But (laughs) he's saved by the Virgin. Like, he believes... It's kind of like the end of Brazil, you know, where Jonathan Price is lost in his fantasy world, even though he's yeah, lobotomized so. or tortured <laughs> in a similar way. This character in his own, somewhere in the depths of his crippled mind, he has found salvation. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the virgin came in and, and saved him. That character who is this local woman who keeps, who's dressed in blue, who keeps reappearing. And the first time we see her, there's that wonderful scene where she's got the young child, sort of cherubic child and she's peeling an apple and he looks over and the apple peel has formed a halo right
0: above his head and yeah. so, from that moment forward you know that she's
2: the virgin mother she's mary and then she turns out to be a nurse in the hospital at the end where he ends up being interred uh, yeah. yes that's right
0: yeah that's right after the train stops right next to a sign that says jesus yeah, is everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right oh, oh marvelous <laughs>
1: Trivia! It's trivia time, Vincenzo. You are our guest. What have you retrieved from a locked cupboard today?
2: In the commentary, which was really great with Verhoeven, he said that when they were shooting the film, which was actually in the town, I guess where the story was supposed to take place, they were in the hotel bar and a woman came up and she said, Oh, I'm Christine. Oh. I'm the person that Gerard, I guess, the true writer of the book, based the story on, and I had a husband who died, and I had one who lost an eye, and wow. so supposedly there's an, a kernel of truth to the actual story. Yeah.
0: Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Did she work in a hair salon?
2: <laughs> she might have. Like it was, I can't remember, but it was surprisingly <laughs> close to closer than you might expect to what that movie is. Wow. And uh, he said she was very beautiful and kind of seductive.
1: Wow. Yeah. That that's fascinating. All right, that's our trivia.
2: I like movies where I feel the presence of the director. I feel the presence of the narrator, somebody who's leading me and doing it in a seductive way, but in a powerful way. And I feel like this is one of those films. Mm. In the way that you know, Dario Argento, when he's at his best, can do, or, or Brian De Palma,
3: mm-hmm. Alfred mm-hmm.
2: Hitchcock, of course. So. I love how everything that happens at the end of this film has been seated at the beginning. There's no happenstance to anything that we've seen. It's all there very deliberately. Yes, yeah, yes, it's yes. that
0: sense that it's surprising but inevitable in some way. It didn't come easily, apparently. Paul Verhoeven talked in interviews about the fact that while they were shooting it, they had enormous struggles with each scene because each scene in and of itself didn't feel like it meant anything. Mm-hmm. And it was only when they came to the edit that it started to emerge. And he oh. spent more time editing this movie than anything else else he's ever worked on. Wow. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you're filming on set and thinking, I'm I'm not sure what this is all adding up to and hoping that it comes together in the edit?
2: Yeah, I feel that more when I see the first cut. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not when I'm shooting, I have a very clear idea of what it's going to be, what it should be. And then Hmm. The horrible slap in the face (laughs) or, you know, the moment of castration, is when you see your assembly of your film. And just like that's when all the warts are visible and all the things that you didn't notice that were wrong when you were shooting now are horribly evident. (laughs) So that usually hits me later on. But um, I could kind of see that because it's so there are so many dream sequences. Like there are so many sequences of just. Jerome crabe walking along and a dead bird falls down in front of him or, you know, <laughs> yeah. things yeah. like that. Um, but I'm surprised it took so long to cut it because it does, I know he storyboarded the whole thing and it feels beautifully, you know, meticulously planned. Like I can see that. Mm.
1: You started off as a storyboard artist doing a whole bunch of, I think, kids shows <laughs> yes. and also Ginger Snaps which I didn't actually know until I I read about it. But yes, storyboarding, very important in film to sort of gauge how to block a scene and and camera work. I mean, Mm -hmm. it must have been very important in this movie.
2: I think so. I mean, there's two kinds of, this is a simplification, of course, but there's really two kinds of filmmakers. There's what I call hunters and collectors. Uh So the collectors are the kinds of filmmakers that shoot, for lack of a better word, coverage. Like they get a lot of stuff and they don't entirely know how it's all going to come together.
3: Right. Maybe
2: Robert Altman was like that. Definitely Kira Kurosawa was like that. Totally legitimate way to make a movie. But then I think the hunters are the ones who like have a plan, have to a greater or lesser extent already constructed the scenes in their minds, how they're going to be photographed. And that would obviously fall under the of like a Alfred Hitchcock or a Steven Spielberg usually oh. in his earlier days and and I must say that's what I'm drawn to more like I enjoy filmmakers who as I say have a strong voice and where this or I feel like there's an intention in the scene I can feel the intention mm-hmm. in the fabric of how the scene has been blocked and how it's been photographed and storyboards can be a great tool to accomplishing that just because you know a picture says a thousand words and mm. for anyone who doesn't know a storyboard is really like a comic book for the movie it divides all the action and scenes into literal images drawn on a page yeah and yeah so for me since i was a kid you know i making little super eight films i would always draw them and it just became this tool and now it's almost like a, a crutch oh. <laughs> i can't do <laughs> anything without drawing it first right. which is sort of silly but um but it becomes useful. You know, it's also when you don't have a lot of money, uh, you need to plan and you need to have a very clear idea of what you do see and don't see. So you're only building the things that you do see and you're not paying for stuff that you're never going to see on screen. Mm-hmm. And then primarily, it's just a great tool of communication. So you just go to people and go, this is what I want. And we can talk about it, dissect the shot in a very clear way because we're all seeing the same thing. Yeah. Mm. And then when we shoot, what I like to do is we have a foam core board up on a grip stand and we circle the shot we're going to do and then we shoot it and then we cross it off the board and everyone feels great because they <laughs> accomplished something by, you know, halfway through the day. Hopefully you see a lot of X's and right. yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. everyone feel good. So it's, a, it's also like a psychological thing that helps carry people through the day. And so, yeah. yeah.
0: And you're right. In the case of The Fourth Man, it must have been meticulously planned because the film is so heavy in symbolism and all of it is pointing so clearly towards its climax. Yeah. There's so many details.
2: I love how, like, when Christine is driving and they go right under that rebar that's being lowered, Uh, which is (laughs) foreshadowing of what's going to happen later and all the eye trauma (laughs) that's set up early on in the dream sequence. Everywhere. Everywhere.
0: Yeah, everywhere. I mean... The first time she drives him somewhere, they pass a car accident with dead people on the road bleeding out, yeah. and then go under a sign that says, give blood, and it's for the Red Cross. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, just its just constant. It's constant, yeah. It is, <laughs> yeah. 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 If I were a character in Final Destination, I'd be skipping out of there <laughs> immediately.
2: <laughs> yes, I 100% agree. And what's so clever about it, of course, is it's leading us to think, well... Gerard is the fourth man. Like you think it's all going to be him, mm. yeah. And then <laughs> it turns out to be poor Herman. Poor
0: Herman, yeah,
2: <laughs> who gets the rebar through the eye. Yeah,
1: but it gives that vagueness of it because every time he sees his name, like on the coffin, he, it turns out it's not his name. It's it's Herman's name. Yes. So it's still not lying to the audience. No. It's, it's giving us a choice to decide what we think. But
2: <laughs> totally, and and it's misdirecting us. I think it's like very clever in the way that. Yeah. And by the way, I mean. The first time I saw it, even this time, there are things that I miss. I'm just not smart enough. Things stuff goes right over my head. Like I didn't pick up on well, the dead seagull represents the skydiving husband who died, or the body that's being pulled out of the water represents the husband who drowned or the dog that attacks him represents the lion that killed the third husband. So, and I'm cheating because I only know that because I listened to the commentary Uh (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) explain that, but that went right over my head, but it's there, you know, and I, I think it's layered. I think that there is a lot going on here. And I think the whole conversation about God and whether there's somebody looking after us or whether that's a projection or whether there's something malevolent out there that is beyond the pale of our normal lives Mm -hmm. is a really interesting one Mm -hmm. because i think that's how humans respond to our world i think we can't help it even if we're not religious and i'm not remotely religious we can't help but ascribe a higher power to events that occur like i'm I'm not superstitious or anything, but I, like, in a way I am. Like I think that's just the way <laughs> the human brain is wired. I can't help but associate things that appear to be coincidental as being related. It's just what we do. Mm. It
0: is, yeah. We're trained to spot connections, and, and we naturally create stories for ourselves. And I love in his speech where he equates Christianity with, or well, specifically Catholicism with science, mm-hmm. in the fact that both of them require a leap of imagination in order to create discovery and, and meaning and improve Our lives. It's a fascinating conversation that's going on in the movie. I'm not sure it draws any conclusions. Any of this could have happened or not happened. It could simply just be a car accident that happened at the end of the movie, and Christine could be perfectly innocent. We are never given a scene in which Gerard is not. The person who is interpreting the events for us—that's true. We see everything with him in it. I think the only time we do is when he says to Christine that he's going to stay a little longer so that he can teach Herman how to be a better lover, which is hilarious because, as far as I could tell, he didn't do particularly well either. But never mind. Um, <laughs> but he says that he's going to stay a little longer just to coach Herman. They hug and I think you get a shot over his shoulder of Christine's reaction. And she looks yeah. a little bit sinister and a little bit Sharon Stone and in basic instinct. Uh-huh. But again, she could just genuinely be happy. And that's just the way her face <laughs> interprets that.
1: <laughs> totally, but, Yeah, with the score playing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: she seems genuinely upset when he pretends to drown and it reminds her of one of her husband's dying. Mm. But then yeah. she doesn't mention that it's one of her husband's. Right. And there have been three. Mm. I don't know. It's completely open to interpretation and it's all the more delicious for that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I really think so. And watching again, I was reminded, of course, that when you do see each husband's death, that's in Gerard's mind mm. somehow in my memory of it it was like we saw the footage of them dying but then yeah. watching it again I was like oh no no that's just his yeah. what he's he's extrapolating <laughs> yes, from those right. scenes and it's not the actual footage so we don't yeah we don't know no. but I love how she meets you know the, the fifth man at the end yeah she does <laughs> the, guy, the surfer who picks her up and says oh yeah I surfed between the oil tankers and she says isn't that dangerous he goes ah oh, no <laughs> it's fine so okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we know he's got a short Life. She didn't waste any time. That was in the waiting room of the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. she's already yeah, moved yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Coming to you live from the movie Oubliette Theatre. It's the prestigious Moobly Award.
1: Hello, it's that special time of the pod, the Mobley Awards, where we nominate our favourite creepily prophetic parts of the film in a number of eye-oozing categories. Best
2: quote. I think mine would be, I lie the truth. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gerard says uh, in his speech to the literary... Uh,
0: society yeah it's wonderful which
2: is sort of what the movie does and what all literature does yeah 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 Yeah.
1: the fact he's a sort of an unreliable narrator as well the character it's it's just like what is a lie here what's
0: the truth
2: right exactly he
0: goes on to say what you make of reality is infinitely more interesting than reality itself it's marvelous Mm, yes conrad Favourite quote for you? Talking about writers, somebody, the the doctor at the end of the movie says, Writers can do fine things, but when they crack up, they're a
2: menace. (laughs) 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 That's great. (laughs) Best hair or costume? Christine's hair is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think she's a standout. Mm. I think she is, yeah. She is that Hitchcockian platinum blonde, for sure. To a T. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it's symbolism again, but always wearing red, as well throughout oh, yeah. the entire film. Red, that that red dress—is it a red dress that she wears at the start, sort of when she first meets, um, Gerard, mm. and with the shoulder pads, this kind of square shoulder pads and red <laughs> lipstick.
0: Mm. Yeah. If I had to pick one item of costume, I think it would have to be Jesus's speedo. Uh- <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, which is a, a phrase I never thought I'd say in my life. Yeah, but there we yeah. go. But it, it yeah, it has a particularly uh, striking red speedo on. Not for very long, though. It has to be said.
2: That's a funny scene when he like fillets this. Jesus. <laughs> and the, old, yeah. the old lady shows up.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's she's not amused, is she? <laughs> Most Ares's
2: moment. Also, Christine's hair. (laughs) Yeah. Christine
1: just epitomizes the 80s in this movie.
0: Yeah. I was going to say neon for absolutely every sign. It's almost Blade Runner esque, actually. Sometimes tellingly with certain letters missing, but yeah, there's neon Mm. everywhere the hotel, the hairdressing salon, everything. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'd be curious to know what you guys thought. Like, I I thought the film was surprisingly 80s proof. Like, it, um, it's classically enough designed and photographed that it wasn't timeless. I wouldn't say it was, like, outside of time, but it, it, it aged very well for me. Like, I didn't find... There was nothing... There was no fashion in it or anything that made me cringe. Like nobody walked in with a mullet um, <laughs> you know. as they do in Flesh and Plus Blood.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you
2: know, it, it, because maybe perhaps because they were trying to emulate a classic Hitchcockian film or film noir, but it, you know, people were very represented in a very classical fashion and mm. the lighting was, you know, old Hollywood style.
0: Yeah. Does it look more 50s than anything else, oddly enough? Mm. Seriously. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Favorite scene. I have to say, the penis cutting scene <laughs> for just sheer audacity and yeah. effectiveness. I love. I just like how there's a dream within a dream.
1: Ah, uh, yes, yes.
2: You know, and and how, and also like how it's sort of sensual and soft and then suddenly these scissors come out. It yeah. was <laughs> a great shot where he's there and the scissors come up in the foreground, like perfectly <laughs> crazy where die down. Yeah. And then like no subtlety whatsoever. You see his penis cut off yeah. close yeah. up with a fabulous stream of blood, like I think, yeah. You know, yeah. that's pretty courageous in uh, oh. the certainly the one I remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think every every male viewer
0: would, would remember that scene. <laughs> uh, my favorite scene is Rev walking into the the image of the mm-hmm. hotel Bellevue is is just so immaculately done and the score is just terrifying while it's happening mm-hmm. too. It's mm-hmm. it's almost like a David Lynchian moment. It's like that. Mm-hmm feel like your mind is breaking while you're watching it but it's just spellbinding mm. most cliche
2: moment i mean the femme fatale i guess yeah
0: yeah that's what i'd written down
2: is which has become a slightly tired you know i think at this point people don't want to
0: yeah
2: i've kind of had it with that but she's such a because she's ambiguous you could in defense of the film you say because she may not be a femme fatale mm. that you know it, the movie transcends that cliche
0: it could just be gerard's reading of her that makes Mm. her a femme fatale. Yeah. Um, But I do love that uh, she's the emasculating predatory femme fatale who literally is emasculating. I mean, there's none of this (laughs) Samson and Delilah sort of euphemisms here. She just goes straight for the... Yeah. (laughs) The heart of (laughs) the matter.
3: Best special Special effect.
0: effect. There's quite a few, actually. Surprising.
2: There's some really great stuff. Actually, talking about the... um, Seen inside the hotel hallway, that's another in-camera effect where you're behind him, if I remember correctly, you're maybe over one shoulder as he's walking, as Gerard is walking down this hallway, he comes to this door, which is number four. Yes, of
3: course. Or something four, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Uh,
2: and then, and then the camera comes around him, so it, his back obscures the number. And as you come around the other side, you see that it's an eyeball yeah. coming out of the door. Yeah, yeah, It's a very difficult thing to do. I, I don't know how they did it. It was obviously an in-camera effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite effect was the eye just oozing out of the door it's it's disgusting uh but it, I, yeah
0: <laughs> it works really well yeah i picked exactly the same thing because i i was not expecting it to do that i thought that it was just you know looking and would be uh-huh. the jump you know that would take us out of the dream but no it, it went one step further as Behoven always does <laughs> favorite sound effect Uh, For me, I just picked more of a sound design moment, which is when the woman in the salon, who you later learn is Mary yet again, is telling a story of a pilot who has a (laughs) prophetic dream and avoids getting on a plane that crashes. And she seems to be about to say that the prophetic dream involved castration. And then Christine comes marching in and drowns her out with a hairdryer. (laughs) I love it. It's great yeah <laughs> it's so great yeah it's it's so comical again it's another moment where you can hear paul verhoeven giggling behind the camera <laughs>
3: yeah
2: most, most funniest, funniest moment. moment i mean i love when he first meets he he's like on the train arriving to this little town and he sees a man formerly dressed who he assumes his going there to greet him because he's a writer and it's an undertaker (laughs) and then he sees there's a coffin and the coffin has his name on it yeah (laughs) and then and then it's unfolded to reveal that it's not his name it's
0: it's herman Herman. Mm. yeah 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 yeah.
2: (laughs) but the the undertaker's so gleeful to see him like (laughs)
0: yeah yeah i love it as soon as he turns up it's death again it's amazing
1: yeah Uh, the funny moments uh, I think we've all mentioned them before but the the dead seagull like almost hitting him was just (laughs) (laughs) it just came out of nowhere it's like oh he kind of just like flinches out of the way
2: (laughs) it's like a Monty
0: Python sketch (laughs) it
2: has a heart attack actually talking about sound effects it kind of goes Ah! before it collapses
3: (laughs) oh that's great
0: okay Okay. I think that's our Moobly Awards. Yeah.
2: Hey, this is Don Mancini, the creator of Chucky, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette.
1: Okay, it's time for our final verdicts. Should Paul Verhoeven's The Fourth Man escape the Oubliette? marry more husbands and be praised <laughs> as symbolic cinema? Or should it be involved in a horrible accident and be put in an inn with Christine's other husbands and, and <laughs> hidden back down in the oubliette, lost forever? Uh, Vincenzo, you've presented us with the fourth man. I, I'm, I'm guessing you, you would recommend this film to other people. <laughs> yes,
2: highly recommend. And I, and I have to say that I was shocked to discover that I could not, get it anywhere. It's completely mm. out of print as a doesn't exist as a Blu-ray. It's out of print as a DVD. Yeah, wow. In Canada, it's not streaming anywhere. And I had to go to the only functioning video store, rental store in Toronto to find it. Thank God they had it. So it is in the Oubliette right now and I very much want it to come out and I want people to know what a brilliant movie it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I would agree. I mean I I, I would I would like to watch more Verhoeven films, especially his sort of early work. Like, it, there's a lot packed into that ninety minutes or whatever the the film is. Um, there's a lot of symbolism, but it it is verging on too much. When you have a sign saying <laughs> "Jesus is everywhere," you might as well just have a sign saying "Symbolism." Like, it's just it's <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um,
2: well, you should definitely. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Dan. But you should definitely check out his other films because they're not like that. Like, if 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 that rubs you the wrong way at all, any of his other films from the Netherlands are. Without
1: a symbol. <laughs> right. They're, oh, very, okay. they're symbol. much more
2: stark. Um
1: yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. But I mean I enjoyed the intrigue of this film and, and sort of the, the the mystery behind Christine. Um and I did I I love flawed characters. I, I, I love seeing someone just descend into badness. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> I, I'm sick of seeing likable perfect.
0: Flawless characters, you know. I, I want to see a, a troubled man. It's one of my favourite moments on David Fincher's commentary for Gone Girl was he got this note from the studio saying that the main character wasn't likable, and, and David Fincher says, which obviously concerned me a great deal. <laughs> I just love how how few fucks J- David Fincher has to give. Mm. <laughs> it's marvellous it's great love it Um, well I don't think it's any surprise that I love this movie too it's it's gorgeous Uh, it's it's heavy on the symbolism but it, it all leads to an ending that it, once you've seen it is inevitable but you never would have guessed where it was going to begin with it's delightfully funny it's terrifying and disturbing in some places mm. and and it's charged with lots of uh, eroticism including homoeroticism so there's something there for everyone yeah um and um I think it probably is Verhoeven's best film, without a doubt. I'm intrigued to see more of his films, but I think we may have peaked. But uh, I'm so glad you introduced us to it, Vincenzo. I think it definitely should be out of the oubliette and more available (laughs) for people to see. Yeah, definitely.
2: Oh, thank you, guys. It's such a pleasure. I'm so happy you liked it.
0: Okay, well, that's our verdict. I guess it's time to find out what our patrons think. Mm -hmm. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. It's time for the patrons vote, please
1: in their infinite wisdom our patrons voted to set the film free
0: oh okay
1: Hmm. i'm surprised because this is not the sort of film we normally do sort of the indie foreign language film
0: no and it's a challenging one for sure i would say but two-thirds of people said slide off its speedo and let it run free (laughs) one-third said it's hard to find for a reason throw it back and another third said I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I mean it was it was challenging to find it.
0: It was. Yeah. Uh we heard from Chazilla and he said sex booze and psychosis I loved it. Christine couldn't have been more noir if she'd been plucked off a 40s black-and-white film. Mm. What a femme fatale. Do you think Gerard really was a little bit psychic? His dreams did have a funny way of coming true. Verhoeven really overdid it with the foreshadowing, colours and religious iconography. And it worked for this story. Nothing subtle here. Three cows draining blood and four vats? Yikes! Your next dude! I'll have nightmares about scissors for the rest of my life. And slowly sliding Herman Speedo down his Adonis like body whilst crucified? I'll never get that image out of my head. What a horn dog. Wow. I can see where Verhoeven used this as the blueprint for Basic Instinct. Oh. Infinite rewatchability. I give this sex triangle three enthusiastic schwings and say, let it out of the oubliette for the world to secretly enjoy more than they're comfortable admitting. (laughs) Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's great. And we also heard from Isaac, who said, OK, I finished and spoiler, the douchebag lives. Earlier, he'd said, I'm only an hour into this, and I really hope the spider motif pays off because this guy is such a fucking douchebag. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Isaac was fond of the movie but hated the main character, which is interesting. We talked about the main character not being Mm, mm, likeable. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for voting, patrons. All right, the fourth man, be free. (laughs)
1: So huge thanks to our guest today, Vincenzo Natale. Uh, where can our listeners follow you uh, to see what you have coming up next?
2: Well, I'm on the app formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to gently migrate over to Instagram, but uh, my handle is Vincenzo underscore Natalie.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I did a kind of crazy thing. I, wrote and illustrated a 200-page graphic novel Ooh. that will be coming out um, this fall from uh, Encyclopocalypse Press. Wow. And I'm, you know, hopefully making a movie soon. <laughs> 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 we'll see, see if I can get out of my oubliette. <laughs>
0: have you got various things in, in various stages of development right now?
2: I have a movie that's cast and... Ready to go. I just need a little bit of money. Uh So I'm hoping that's uh, now we're in the midst for anyone who's listening to this. We're in the midst of a SAG Actra strike. So it's a little bit of a hard time to really, you know, move forward. We have to wait for that to resolve itself. Mm-hmm. but uh, I'm sure it will before too long, and then uh, we'll be off to the races.
0: Oh, great. So would that cast include David Hewlett? That's the major question. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> my, my fourth man. Yeah. <laughs> i'll never i'll never let him be killed he'll i'll never let him off the hook
0: yes Uh, i'm so glad because he's like
2: just keep torturing he's
0: like the bruce campbell to your sam raimi it's just he has to be there
2: (laughs) he's a wonderful actor the (laughs) yes one of my dearest friends and yeah 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 i have a little part for him in it
0: fantastic well can't wait to see it and can't wait to see the graphic novel as well yeah yeah
2: thank you thank you it's called Tech. Sorry, I should say it's called
1: Tech. Ah, great. Sounds really interesting. And listeners, if you want to follow us, we are everywhere on all our socials uh, as Movie Oubliette. And uh, our email address is movie.oubliette at gmail.com.
0: And if you want to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you get extra extended portions of the show. For $5, you get to vote on the final verdict and get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes. And for $10, you you can be an executive producer like our current executive producers, Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton, Dr. Doggy, and Serge. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Thanks for the support. Mm. And we have, uh, of course, some merchandise on Redbubble and a YouTube channel. Uh, you can look at some video essays that we were involved with and some live panels.
0: Yes, and they were very nerve wracking to do. So please enjoy them. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes. Uh, <laughs> All right, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? What film will you reveal?
0: Well, we're going to be doing something that you've been waiting to do for a long time, Dan. Ooh-hoo. It's celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And we're dipping back into Stephen King land. It's the 2003 American science fiction horror film, Dreamcatcher. Ah, yes, this is for. 4 Five
1: years in the making uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of me finishing the book finally this year. Um, lots yeah. of rereading and, you know, my dog eating a bunch of pages. But I got there <laughs> and now we're finally going to do the film.
0: We are. yeah. So it better be good. <laughs> it better be good. Well, it's directed by Lawrence Kazdan of the Star Wars universe. A screenplay by Oscar winner William Goldman and Lawrence Kasdan, Uh uh, starring Morgan Freeman, Thomas Jane, Jason Lee, Damian Lewis, Timothy Oliphant, Tom Sizemore, and Donnie Wahlberg. Ah. I mean, how could it be anything other than amazing? Yes. I mean, I am expecting uh,
1: an absolute masterpiece. Uh, I will be deeply disappointed (laughs) with anything
0: less. Of course. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, with that in mind, cannot wait for the next episode. <laughs> so, thanks so much, Vincenzo, for joining us today. It's been amazing.
2: Well, thank you, Conrad. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for everyone who's listening. This has been a delight, and I hope everyone watches what we consider Oliver Hovens best movie.
1: Indeed. All right, listeners. Until next time. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye,
0: everybody. <laughs> Have fun out there. Review the films, others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie, you
1: Writers can do fine things, but when they crack up, they're a menace.